Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. I have been to New Orleans many times since I moved to the U.S. back in 2002. I met my new guest, Chef Michael Gulota, back in 2016 at his restaurant Mofo. And last year, I finally tasted his food at Maypop. I really love the food, and I'm not the only one because this year he won the Best Chef South James Beard Award. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and you are listening to episode 49 of my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US, and every other week, I interview trending chef, pastry chef, and bartenders around the country. If you are liking the podcast, why don't you go give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown to stay tuned to the latest episodes. Also visit us at flavorsunknown.com and don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. In this episode, Chef Michael Gilota will share with us his creative approach from the idea of a concept to the execution of a dish combining Southern and Southeast Asian flavors. Chef Michael Gulota will talk to us about his time in Northern Italy and Germany before coming back to New Orleans. And he will share a special recipe of a chicken dish, Michael Gulota style. Hi, Chef. How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm very excited to have you on uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm excited to be here. Glad we could finally make it work. Yes, exactly. It's been uh, it's been a while. The last time we uh, we know we even have seen each other, I think it was in your uh, you know restaurants, and uh, there was a time where we were still allowed to travel. <laughs> so it's not the case, obviously, yeah. at the moment. <laughs> and a lot of changes. Yeah, absolutely. So I've seen that you have. Uh, reopened not too long ago, like, I mean, not too long ago, mid May, probably, MoFo. Um, MoFo you know, for reopened. Yeah, it's reopened for both takeout and, and delivery. We have I've seen this. Obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, you closed your all the restaurants. So um, can I ask you why you have made that decision uh, you know, earlier on in the, in the situation? Well, the, the biggest thing about closing them all down. It was kind of twofold. One was our staff started getting very concerned and didn't want to come to work. And then the other side, we weren't going to make them come to work. You know, that's, that's not fair. If they don't feel comfortable, then they can't, then they can't come in, obviously. And then the other side of that was we felt that everything was going to be shut down. We could kind of read the way things were going in, you know, in Italy and in, and in Europe. And so we decided to get ahead of it. And we knew that if everyone got scared and stopped going out to eat, we could not operate the restaurants with the amount of labor that we had. You know, it's unfortunately the restaurants are a business. They're a day-to-day business and they're a business that operates on very thin margins. So there's no way we would have had enough money to just keep rolling with the same number of staff. So we figured the easiest thing to do was to hurry up and shut. We had enough money in our bank to pay everyone for the hours that they had worked. So we just, we shut it down. We paid everyone, including our salary employees, up to their last day worked. And when um, we basically just put the put the whole company in suspended animation. 
But would have it been possible for maybe some of your restaurants like to maybe only keep, I understand it's a tough decision, but like uh, to keep like a, a minimum staff and, and do um, takeouts maybe out of one, you know, one of your restaurants? I, obviously, you haven't done that. So I was curious to understand why. The biggest thing is it's an emotional decision. We have staff members that have been with us, especially in MoFo, we have staff members that have been with us for six years. And then to go through and decide who gets to say and who doesn't was a very hard choice for us. So we figured we cut everyone off and just shut it down. And the flip side of that is that, you know, my business partners and I, we all have young children and we ha and they were suddenly out of school. So we had to go take care of them. And we didn't feel comfortable bringing them to the restaurants because, of course, they're going to be if they're at the restaurants with us and they're interacting with people and then they could get sick. And, you know, people forget that when we first shut everything down, they were still not a lot known you know, even less known about the disease. And so we thought it was still getting spread by surfaces. And, and so everything they touched, you know, my boys are on the autism spectrum. So they have a sensory thing where they like to touch and feel everything. And I cannot make them stop doing that. And so, you know, so I couldn't bring them to work with me. So suddenly it's like, how do I ask my staff to go run it if I'm not even there when I'm home taking care of my kids? So that was a, that there was a, a lot of, facets to why we just decided to it was just too many moving parts and too many people who didn't feel comfortable coming into work and then trying to figure out who sort of felt comfortable coming into work so we just said you know what let's just shut it all down we have enough money to pay everyone this last payroll and we'll just be done for now and we'll, we'll take a look when things calm down yeah so you're talking about your your two boys i mean i follow your instagram and it's uh it's pretty i would say uh, funny to uh you know to see uh all the activities that you are doing you know with them and then they're helping you you know in the kitchen they're helping you even in the garden i, I there's something i don't know why but it's something i i remember from one of your posts when uh, you were doing some trimming and uh, you know in the garden and then uh, you, you posted like a, a picture of one of your son i think that uh, wanted to help you and uh you know, as well to do yeah. some trimming. And I think that your fig tree was, uh, didn't survive or <laughs> barely survived. <laughs> my, uh, my, my lime tree, my, uh, my, uh, oh, lime my tree. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, my McCrute lime tree did not survive. <laughs> and it, it's, it's funny to realize the, it was one of those moments where I didn't realize how terrified my kids are of me until, you know, I was angry at first. And I was like, what happened? Who did this? And one of my sons literally the terror in his face. And I was like, you know what? I'm not angry. You just need to come outside and I'm going to show you why what you did was wrong. And then you are going to help me pick yeah. it all up. And then you're going yeah, to help yeah. me take all these leaves and we're going to freeze them. So I'm going to show you that it, even if you do the wrong thing, there's a way that we can make up for it. And so it was a big, because at first I was just furious and, and like the, the terror in his eyes. And I'm like, okay, he doesn't, he thought he actually thought he was helping me. So, <laughs> he, so let's go yeah. show him why he can't do it. That's interesting to uh, to hear that side of you see uh, not everything was mentioned you know on the on the, on the post and um, but I thought it was uh, it was an amusing situation at least uh, you mm -hmm. know from the outside maybe not for yeah. you because of <laughs> not of your tree obviously you know obviously you guys in New Orleans you have been through a lot of you know natural uh, disasters you know in uh, in the past um, you know very difficult situation obviously with um, you know the hurricane Katrina when. Like you, you, you came back to, um, uh, you know, to New Orleans at that time. I'm sure we'll uh, talk about this uh, a bit later. How was this this current situation of the pandemic compared to a disaster like the Hurricane Hurricane Katrina that uh, you know that you lived through? Well, there's multiple differences. I mean, Katrina was one of those ones that you can everyone can unite over, and 
come together and fix. And, you know, it really brought a sense of community and it actually brought the country coming down to try to save New Orleans because it is such a, a heritage site. Uh, whereas the pandemic is is much more of an every person for themselves. It's become so political and so, uh, you know, everyone, so much misinformation and it's just such a different, it, it, is, it has broken more, whereas, whereas Katrina brought people together this pandemic has has caused rifts across the, the city. And so it's much harder to deal with. And, and most people are still are compassionate and they're trying to help, you know, small. a lot of people came and bought gift, gift certificates from us while we were closed to try to help us have some income. And, you know, there there is some support. You know, now that we have reopened for sit-down dining inside of MoFo, you know, we ask that everyone come in, wear masks, and we even offer disposable masks for the comfort of our staff and the comfort of our other guests. And everyone has been very kind i find if you know when when if we ask in a very respectful way they are usually very respectful to us but it, and also this is something that you can't just fight against you know like katrina destroyed the city okay let's clean it up and let's rebuild it whereas the pandemic we ha- it's still very touch and go it's a slowly unfolding hurricane like it's still going on like the hurricane is still here slowly tearing things apart whereas with katrina it tore it apart and we built it back up and this one's much more of a figured out as we go along You said you reopened, you know, your uh, restaurants. I mean, and um, but can you tell us a little bit? Yeah, one of them. Yeah, but uh, so can you tell us a little bit uh, about your, um, you know, the different concept that you have, the dining concept that you have between uh, Mofo, Maypop, you know, Rum and the Lash, and as well even like um, you know Tana. Mm-hmm. Mofo was our first restaurant, and you know it's funny how Mofo came about. Originally, it was just supposed to be kind of a little hole in the wall that was going to make the money to then kind of move into a, a higher end restaurant. And when, but I was leaving, you know, my business partners and I were leaving such high profile positions that suddenly it was like on all these maps of like most anticipated restaurants. And we we're like, oh man, we are actually going to have to make this something to see. And so it really took sort of revamping it because it was going to be more of a simplistic, just like, pho shop really because you couldn't at that time six years ago it was still much the city was still very much in its rebuilding phase from katrina and there was no pho restaurants and we love pho restaurants and so we wanted to make a restaurant that was a new orleans neighborhood spot first but inspired by vietnamese cuisine and as we started building it and and as we started developing the menu and the concepts we started doing the, the history and the research like i grew up with a lot of vietnamese friends and i would eat their their food and i loved how you know, their aunts and their parents would cook for us and they would incorporate Louisiana products or Louisiana dishes with, it would either be Vietnamese dishes with Louisiana products or Louisiana products with Vietnamese ingredients. Like that's how they would do it. And I thought it was just this very amazing, I was just inspired by it. And I love the, I love the way they took the, the hearty dishes of New Orleans and they brightened them with, with all of the, 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 the ginger and the, and the lemongrass and the lime leaf. And for the people, the people listening, I think we we should mention that there is quite a a big community of uh, Vietnamese people in New Orleans. Right. So they all settled here after the Vietnam War, and the interesting thing is it is because there's such a large uh, New Orleans, is such a large Catholic city, and because we were a French colony, and so it's New Orleans is mostly Catholic. As you move into northern Louisiana, it's Baptist and everything else. But in New Orleans, because we were we were specifically a French colony, 
it's majority Catholic and Vietnam was also a French colony. So it was majority Catholic. And so it was a lot of Catholic missionaries bringing the Vietnamese back to the, to New Orleans because they're kind of sister cities or uh, sister states, I guess you would say. And so they settled along the coast and they loved it here because it was all seafood and, and they're all fishermen and farmers and, and all along the Gulf coast is all fishing and farming. And so they immediately enmeshed themselves with the, the local uh, shrimping and fishing community. Obviously, there's, there's the big Vietnamese, you know, influence. But how did you execute yourself, your dishes? Because, yes, you had the experience of, uh, you know, like your family, friends and, you know, that are right. Vietnamese. But um, this is not obviously your personal like background. So how did you execute, you know, those dishes yourself? It was a lot of give and take. It was a lot of screw, screwing it up because I had never been at that point. I had never been to Southeast Asia. I only knew what I cooked with my friends and what I grew up eating at the, Viet, the the local Vietnamese restaurants. And so when we first opened, it wasn't very Vietnamese at all, besides the pho. And even that, we did it. And that was the one thing we kept saying, like, we're not a Vietnamese restaurant. We are a New Orleans restaurant inspired by Vietnamese cuisine. We are trying to find parallels between, you know, New Orleans and Vietnam. And so that kind of gave us free reign. So I started just building a pantry with Vietnamese ingredients and started making New Orleans dishes with those Vietnamese ingredients. And that's kind of like the gumbo that we do that we're known for. And like we do, uh, we do a pho on Wednesdays that is a pork pho. So we take the same exact approach that a Vietnamese person would take to making pho, but we add in smoked pork hocks and we make the bones with, with pork bones. And so, because that's very big in South Louisiana for us, smoked pork is a big thing. And I've actually had discussions with Vietnamese friends of mine saying that, well, smoked pork pho is not a thing. Like you would never put pork in pho. You would make uh with that which is which is more their pork broth dish you would but you would never say pork pho and i and you know my response is you know i understand that completely we're not here to do traditional vietnamese cuisine but just like if someone from france came to south louisiana and we showed them a cubillon it's nothing like a french courbouillon like sure. they're very different things one is an evolution of a traditional cuisine which is what we're trying to do we're trying to evolve the traditional Vietnamese cuisine here in New Orleans. Our whole idea is always like, what does a third generation New Orleans Vietnamese person cook for their wife or husband that is from Lafayette, Louisiana? What would they cook for them? And that's kind of the idea of how we approach dishes at, at, at MoFo. Okay. And so beside like the, the pork pho that you, you, know, you, you did, where, where the other let's say iconic dishes that you, you created? Our, our pomies, so we, we do the pomies, which is a, a mixture of po'boy and banh mi, which is the, the traditional Vietnamese. So we do a mix and we do traditionally New Orleans po'boy staples. Like we do hot sausage and we do fried shrimp and we do fried oysters, but we put them on uh, locally baked bread, but we do it with all the, the, the garnishes that would go on a banh mi. So you have, the, you have the pickled vegetables, you have the jalapenos, you have the mint, the cilantro, the aioli. And so it's, it's an exact split down the middle of Vietnam and New Orleans. In fact, for the people listening, if they haven't seen it, and of course, at the moment, there's not a lot of travel, but uh, when you arrive at the airport or before you leave, you know, from New Orleans, you have now 
a small like um, you know like mofo out there, correct? As well on the it's on not the small. Terminal. It's actually this. It's at the. It's Sorry. actually the same number. Of, <laughs> no, no. It's funny because it almost I don't looks know why like it's it small. It's small. I don't know why. But it's uh, <laughs> it's actually because most of, we originally it was supposed to be a little kiosk, and uh, because of some internal shuffling we ended up getting a huge location it's actually the same number of seats as the mofo as the main mofo it's 80 seats yeah it's a big restaurant okay and then in 2017 then you open maypop so how is maypop different from uh, like from mofo maypop was was kind of a a, you know we we were we were running our little pop-up called tana um, because my training is New Orleans, but also I spent a lot of time in northern Italy and southern Germany. And so Tana was sort of this northern coastal Italian cuisine that we were doing, sort of melded with my Sicilian heritage that we were doing at Tana. And Tana actually had a pretty big following. And then in 2016, we uh, I received a Food & Wine Best New Chef from Food & Wine Magazine. And so we were kind of like, man, we have a spot to open another restaurant. We should go big. And we were kind of divided on, do we just, do we want to do the Tana concept, which is Italian, or do we want to do something more interesting? And so I was like, well, what if we sort of meld Tana with Mofo? So it was this cuisine that meld, that more melds the Mekong Delta with the Mississippi Delta. So it pulls from all of my training, pasta making and charcuterie, you know, from my time in Italy and Germany, but then it, it blends it with all of the, the Mekong Delta. So there's Laotian cuisine, there's Thai cuisine, there's Vietnamese cuisine. And it's one of those ones where we sort of created our own cuisine, and that was a hard sell in the beginning. It took three years to get uh, Maypop really going. It was kind of met with us. like People were still really gushing on Mofo, and so Maypop kind of opened to a whisper. No one really knew that it opened. We didn't have a whole lot of money to do like big fanfare for it. And so it struggled for, for two and a half years, and it just really started getting busy this last spring, where it was, I'm cons- sorry, this last fall, fall of 2019, where it really got consistently busy. People were starting to trust the food. It was starting to get some really good reviews. We were, we were on Condé Nast's top 20 restaurants in New Orleans. We were, we were on uh, Southern Living's uh, restaurants that make New Orleans what it is, basically. Why it, restaurants that make New Orleans the greatest food city in the South? We were on that list. And then I and made a uh, final... Back. Yeah, the, the final Beard. of the James Beard yeah, this and year. All yeah, for, so and all that's for Maypop. Congratulations. So, yeah. Thank you. That's, so that's Maypop fantastic. really started to chug. And also, you know, I took a trip with my chef de cuisine, Paul Shell from MoFo. He and I took a trip to Southeast Asia. And we traveled through Laos and Thailand. And uh, we went to Singapore. And that also helped me a lot in, in sort of refining Maypop's approach. And, uh, and also, just you know, it takes three years to really get a good team together. We had a really good team that was meshing. And the food in the front of the house was coming around and we were having really good, we had found a really good cocktail team. And so the restaurant was really starting. We found a really good general manager who was bringing in a great wine list. And so it just started to really pop, unfortunately, right before the pandemic. And now it's going to remain shut for the foreseeable future just because it's in the worst part of the city. It's in the tourism center. And so if there's no tourism and plus it's, it is kind of a fringe uh, restaurant. People are only going to go there if they're really seeking it out. It's hard. We're not just going to catch like overflow of, of diners who are here traveling for to see New Orleans cuisine because it's not really New Orleans cuisine. It's an evolution of New Orleans cuisine. So let's go back a little bit to, um, you know, your, the trip that you have taken with your chef de cuisine to uh, Southeast Asia. Which country have you been to? And then uh, how did you approach, let's say, the, the discovery? Because it was your first trip and... 
you know, what were you focusing on and trying to, and what was like the, the learning experience and or the exposure experience? And how, did it change, you know, like uh, some of the dishes or created like new dishes, obviously, on your menu? Right, 100%. I'm thankful. I'm a really bad planner. I'm much more of just like a go and do things kind of person. So thankfully, I went with my chef de cuisine and his wife because they do nonprofit outreach. They go and teach reproductive health care to small villages and um, indigenous wow. people in Southeast Asia. So that's what his wife does. And he spends, uh, well, true not this year because of the pandemic, but typically every summer he spends a month and a half either in Laos or in Indonesia teaching these indigenous tribes, uh, like people who are so indigenous that they don't refer to themselves as Laotian or Indonesian. They refer to themselves to whatever their tribal name has been since before those were countries kind of thing. And so they really know their way around down there. And his wife is very meticulous. They're, they're great people to travel with because they're very meticulous on scheduling. Like as far as like we have to be at an airport at this time, we have to be, you know, we got to be on a train at this time, but everything else is up for whatever. Like they'll be like, well, we we're going to do this today, but if we're tired, let's not. Or, hey, we're going to do this, but if you want to do this, we can do that. And they're really, really fun and easy to travel with. He gets really excited about the cuisine, which I love, because sometimes I think there's the, the years of trying to run restaurants and keep them going have sometimes kind of just wears on you and you get kind of tired of the cuisine, whereas he, he really, Chef Paul really stays excited. And so it was fun to be there with him because he's like, oh, we got to go to this stall and oh, we got to go see this lady and oh, we got to go do this. And that was really great because he, he was down to just sort of walk the, each city and try different things. And, you know, we one, one morning we got up at 7 a.m. to go get the, uh, the, the Lao Khao Soy, which is, you know, in Thailand, Khao Soy is like a curry brothy soup with lots of noodles and things, whereas in, but in Laos, it's a broth, almost like a pho. And it has this almost like a, it's almost like a bolognese, like a scoop of bolognese in the middle. And then you slowly mix the bolognese into this noodle soup and you eat it. And it's just this very transformative, wonderful, uh, re restorative dish that you have early in the morning. And the, and the best one in this city was this one lady stall and you have to get there super early. And it was just this amazing experience where each bundle of herbs was like hand tied with a piece of stripped lemongrass. Like it was just really, really amazing. And so, you know, that really influenced us when we came back. One of the biggest thing was a uh, Bangkok, like Bangkok was an amazing experience. So, you know, we put a boat noodle dish on at Maypop that has stayed on forever. You know, I got to have my first real Tom Yum and like Tom Yum has now been a part of both restaurants menus since we got back. Uh, you know, doing really great Tom Yums and, and really finding a way to use Louisiana seafood and make a Tom Yum with that, where we make our own noodles in house and everything. And we had a Tom Yum on Maypop's menu that was just, that just crushed it. I mean, everyone who had it thought it was amazing. And I would not have been able to do that if I hadn't have traveled there and had the real thing. Cause, and, and sometimes I wonder if Mofo would not have been an entirely different restaurant if I'd been able to go to Southeast Asia the first time. But when, you know, when we first, when we first opened Mofo, I had two very young children and we didn't have a whole lot of money to rub together. We opened Mofo on a bit of a shoestring budget, but I wonder how different Mofo would have been if I would have been able to get over to Vietnam, even for a short period of time before I opened it. Have you discovered like specific like ingredients that you didn't know before and that, uh, you know, that you, you were, you know, exposed to when you were in, um, in uh, Southeast Asia? No, uh, not so much new ingredients because, you know, We'd already done a lot of research on that. And then like Chef Paul, who goes there every summer, had brought a lot of ingredients to my, to my, to show me beforehand. So I don't think, I think I, I pretty much expected all the ingredients that I, that I had seen. I really wanted to just go and, and have it all traditionally made. Like 
we always did our, our sometom salad at MoFo traditionally, where, where you pound it every time to order in a mortar and pestle. But to go and have a real one in Thailand and a real one in a Laotian street market was just an eye, was so eye opening to have it really done for me by someone who's been doing it their whole life and, and those kind of things, where it kind of gives validation, but also shows me how it, the slight differences. What compelled you to, uh, to become a chef? I'm a little curious. <laughs> For as long as I can remember, I wanted to cook. I mean, I was having this conversation with my mom the other day, and, and I just always wanted to cook. I always, you know, when I was eight years old, I was bugging her to buy me, like, cooking equipment off of the, in back when they had all the infomercials, I would make her buy me cooking stuff so I could cook things for the family. Like, I always just wanted to cook for people. And, you know, I can remember making her or she agreeing to go out with me and get stuff to make. Like, my favorite cooking show was Yan Can Cook when I was a kid with Martin Yin. And I loved all the things that he would do. So I would write down the recipes and I'd make her go to the grocery store with me. And then we would make them for, for, you know, for the family. So I was always doing that. And I know <laughs> this sounds like one of those stories that isn't tr true and I can't find the book. But so after Katrina, we had to go back and my mom's house got 16 feet of water in it. So it got demolished. But my room, which was on the second floor, my, 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 my childhood room was still there i was living in germany when katrina hit and i came home and i just i tried to get out whatever i could and i actually found a book report that i wrote from the fifth grade and i it had a short autobiography in the beginning and it said that i want to own restaurants one day so i guess i always wanted to oh, do wow. it that's all i can figure yeah <laughs> so oh wow that's that's cute <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. Great. It's one of those ones where you're like, you're like, that can't be true. But now I can't find the damn book. I've looked all over for it. I know I <laughs> saved it. Yeah, because all the stuff got shuffled around from like house to house until my mom finally built her new house. And now I don't know what happened to it. I should have held on to it. But back then I was just trying to, you know, move forward and stay alive. I wasn't thinking about that book. <laughs> so and, and so when you came back to New Orleans, you, you worked at, um, you know, August, correct, with uh, John Besh? Right. I worked there. I actually worked there before I left for Europe. So I worked for him. I was working for him out of culinary school. And then, but I, when he, when he finally gave me the job, I applied like four times there. I, I did two stages. Like he just, everyone was trying to work for him at the time. I finally got in the door, but the day I got in the door, I'd also agreed to go do, uh, to spend a year in Italy or eight months anyway. And so I talked to him like, Hey, I really want to do this thing in Italy. And he's like, no, I think that's great. I want, I want anyone who's that driven that wants to go to learn in Europe. And I was like, okay. So I worked six months and then I got on a plane and I went to Italy, came back eight months later and I get back and, and he's like, he's like, oh no, I still have a position for you. So I went and had a lunch with him and he's like, all right, how was it? And we, you know, we talked about Europe and he's like, so what do you want to do now? I'm like, well, honestly, I really want to get back to Europe eventually. He's like, okay, well, what I can do, he said, give me a year and then I'll send you to work for my old boss in Southern Germany in the Black Forest. And my time in Italy was really simplistic. I worked at this this restaurant on the coast. Um, it had its own private beach. Uh, we were right out. We were right in between uh, Bordighera and San Remo, and so it was like dead smack in between the two. It, it was on. It was basically on the the road that go goes in between. You would just kind of dip down, and there was this little winding road that went down to the beach. And on that beach was this small restaurant called Junchetto, and. I lived above their tool shed for and cooked in the kitchen every day. Uh, I didn't get any days off. I, <laughs> no days off. I didn't get paid. They fed me. They gave me a place to stay. And every now and again, they would give me some spending money if we happened to close for like half a day and I wanted to go somewhere. They'd give me some spending money. But I mean, every day it was the same thing. We only served whatever 
uh, the chef's friend's fishmonger had. It's the most amazing thing. His fish, his fisherman friend ran a storefront in, in Bordighera. And what would happen is he would send his wife to drop off the seafood. And she also ran the storefront. And it was amazing because she always dressed to the nines. She always had high heels, a perfectly fitted dress, makeup. She was a gorgeous woman. Uh, but she would throw the, the fishmonger smock on and just shove, you know, serve fish all day. And then when she brought us the seafood delivery every day, she literally put it on the back of her Vespa and she'd get on the Vespa in the full gown and drive it to us and, and carry it into the restaurant on her shoulder. It was like the, she was the most impressive woman I've ever. It, it was just amazing. And, the, and the, the fisherman friend was like the nicest guy. We could go drive to the dock and he would help. You know, like we'd pick things up off the boat sometimes. I mean, it was just the craziest thing. All the pasta was made fresh for us at a local bakery. So we would go pick up the pasta all the time. You know, at the time, you know, the chef that I work for, his family had a, has a famous restaurant in San Remo. He has since sold Junketto, but he also had, uh, he had two enotecas that he ran in the city. And so we get to go sometimes if I had a half day off, they let me go hang out at the enoteca and just drink, sip, try different wines and eat, uh, little bites. And, and so it was a really amazing experience. And, and, you know, other days if they close, if we, if we did close early, I got to go eat at their family's home which is this beautiful house up on the hill. And uh, it was just really, really special. I spent a lot of time riding around on the back of his Vespa, which is just weird, but it's very, very Italian. I can relate. I spent a lot of my uh, previous life in Nice. So I was uh, in France. So I was in San Remo yeah. quite often. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I can relate. Oh, yeah, you know it well, and, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, it's, and it's such an amazing thing to, to see, you know, and then, but so then, yeah, I came home. And then I talked to, to Chef Bash. I'm like, I want to go to Germany. His, his, one of his mentors is a man named Karl Josef Fuchs, who runs uh, Spielweg, Gasthaus in, in Obermünstertal in southern Germany. They call it the Hochschwarzwald, which is the, the, high, the high black forest. And so I spent a year and a half working there. I started out as their pastry because their pastry person like quit right when I got there. So literally, they threw me into pastry and I ran the pastry station and then I became the butcher. And then by the end, I was sort of the roundsman. So I would actually, because I, I was one of the few people that John sent over that actually learned German. So I actually expedited in the kitchen and would call orders and run the grill. So I, it was a great time. I still am still very close with Herr Fuchs, and I still send cooks every year. So I have a cook over there right now. The cook worked for me for a year at Maypop, and then I sent him uh, over in September, I believe. And so he's over there. I mean, obviously, it's weird because he's trapped over there during the pandemic, but, you know, it's a beautiful area. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're in a little town up in the mountains. They, you know, in, in the restaurant, we serve mainly with the chef and his friends hunt because over there you can sell wild game. So they sell, they hunt the animals and they sell them to the, to the hotel. And that's, I think that's how they pay for their kind of their land leases, their hunting leases. So we butchered everything in house. There's a butcher shop in the back. He built his own kezarai or cheese making shop in, into the side of the building. So we would make all of our own cheese and he had his own cave where he would age it all. It was a really, really amazing experience because he does everything in house. And then after that, so you came back to uh, to New so Orleans. Katrina, so Katrina hit uh, while Katrina. I was in yeah. Germany. Yeah. Okay. And I came back. I called Chef Besh, and I'm like, "Hey, since everything's destroyed, I'm just going to stay either in Germany or if you can help me get a job in New York." And he's like, "No, we're we're, we're opening up. You need to get back here." So I no flew one. back to New Orleans about two months after the hurricane. Once I could get into the city. And I got in and immediately came on as a sous chef 
And from there, I spent a year as basically a roundsman sous chef. I was in the beginning, we were, you know, literally making meals for first responders in the morning and then doing service at night. I was basically the garmanger sous chef, and then I became the banquet sous chef. And then a year later, I became the chef de cuisine. And I spent six and a half years as chef de cuisine. So what would you say what you learn, um, you know, you learn from uh, Chef John Besh, you know, throughout those years? The biggest thing I learned from Chef Besh, I mean, he was the old school tyrannical chef. You know, nothing was nothing was ever good enough. You know, dump out your plots if he didn't think it was right, make you do it over. I mean, he was just he was trained by the old school French chefs and he acted like an old school French chef. So yelling in the kitchen. Yeah. And the only thing I would say that was different about him is, you know, because of, I think, his years in the Marine Corps, he was still very big about, like, pulling a team together and being very regimented and, like, giving, you know, big speeches before big services or pulling people together after bad services and going over what each person did wrong and how we can improve. Those kind of things I, I learned a lot from. Unfortunately, you know, we are similar in that we're, he was very disorganized as far as, like, food costs and things like that. He didn't. He never cared about food costs. We never looked at food cost. We never looked oh, wow. at labor cost. It was only, yeah, he would just, I, so like once I took over a chef to cuisine, there was no systems in place for costing the menu for, for doing any of those, <laughs> any of the, it was just all about changing it constantly. Just change the menu, whatever, however many cooks you need, make them work overtime. Just make sure the food's good. Like with him, it was just make sure the food's good. And he was uncompromising. You know, the big thing he would always drill into my head was like, you cannot make excuses for bad food. Okay. The food has wow. to be perfect. And so, and everything else didn't matter. And it wasn't until like really when I became chef de cuisine where the, where his partner or business partner was like, your food costs out of whack, your labor's out of whack. And then I really had to learn how to fix that, you know? And at that point, my brother came on as our general manager and he actually, you know, he and I really got it, the ship running right. We, we, we got the food costs down. We got the labor costs down. We actually made it the most profitable I think the second year into he and I running it as a team, it was the probably one of the most profitable years the restaurant ever had. And then, it, I mean, it just kept getting crazier. He just kept getting best, just kept getting bigger, bigger and bigger. And so he was finally, he was constantly pulling me out of the restaurant to take him to do, we were doing dinners all over the country. That's when really the celebrity chef thing was really picking up. And so, I mean, it, he was doing, you know, we would do dinners in Miami, dinners in Jackson Hole, dinners in, in Beaver Creek, dinners in Deer Valley, dinners in New York dinners in Chicago and it was just constantly like I was his number two. So literally everywhere he went, I was there. He would send me in the day before or two days before to meet with the team, bring in all the product, get everything prepped. And then he would roll in and for the, for the big show and put the dinner out. So that was kind of my job for about three years there. And then I had kids. And then at that time I was like, Hey, I can't, I really can't keep doing this anymore. And so he had other younger chefs kind of take that place. And I just sort of ran August as the chef de cuisine for a while. But, you know, then all the stuff started happening with, you know, his kind of the things that he got in trouble for. And my yep, brother and yep. I didn't feel comfortable. We didn't feel comfortable there. So he wasn't we really were looking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so as he, as he got bigger, things just kind of got crazier because the whole, the whole company was, you know, we ended up having this huge company that kind of ran the way John ran things where it was like food costs didn't matter. Labor costs didn't matter. You know, it, we didn't really have a culture to our restaurants. Everything was about the food. There was no real, that was it. It was just food, food, food. Like all we care about is the customer, which is kind of backwards. You have to care about your employees too. And so we ended up, 
not feeling comfortable. And so when, when our other business partner, Jeffrey Bybee approached us about, about getting out of there and doing our own thing, then we, we, you know, we jumped at it. So let's talk a little bit about something a bit different here. I'm curious if you can share a little bit with us your creative approach. So of course, we understand the source of inspiration and the parallel, you know, between the Louisiana cooking and, and uh, the Vietnamese or the Southeast Asian, you know, country pantry. But how do you start like, uh, like a dish? What's your first step? Do you start with like a memory of the taste? Do you start with like a produce, you know, from, um, from the market that you want to celebrate? What's the, the, the first the initial, I would say, spark of inspiration? Well, I think there's so many facets. There's so many different ways for a dish to come about. I have never been able to settle on a single way because I try to keep things seasonal. Sometimes it's me sitting down just with whatever, like my local farmers will send me their produce lists and I'll try to go through there and figure out what to do. But also sometimes I'll eat something at a friend's restaurant or I'll, you know, travel and eat something. And I'm like, wow, this inspires me to do my own take on this. Sometimes it is a food memory. Like I'll remember something that I've had and I'm like, man, I really love this dish when I had it. I think we should do a play on that at the restaurant. But also a lot of that is tempered with, uh, with what customers want. I guess, uh, you know, the hard part about when Maypop first opened is that I just thought people, because I had won the food, the food and wine best chef thing, I thought at that point people would just eat my food for whatever I gave them. And that's not true. The customer has to crave what you're putting on the plate. The customer has to be excited about it. And so a lot of that comes into play too. It's like what, uh, sometimes I base dishes off what I think the customer wants and then I add my inspiration to it. There's a whole lot of different ways to attack and they're not always the same. And then later on, and you know, in Maypop's evolution, a lot of it became, I wanted my team to have input. So a lot of times I put it up to the team, like, what are y'all interested in right now? What's, ex- what's exciting to you? And then we would all collaborate, which to me is a lot of fun because uh, they know a lot of things that I don't, you know, and that's also why it's so much fun to do it with Paul at, at MoFo, because Paul just has an amazing palette and amazing history because he's traveled so much through Southeast Asia. Like he just has this amazing mental palette of dishes he'd ha- he's had to pull from. And so it's really fun developing dishes with Paul because we think very similar. And a lot of times it's him going way off on these classical dishes. And then I kind of put it through the New Orleans filter. And then he and I really get excited about getting new dishes on the menu. Like right now, every Friday, since the pandemic has happened now, every Friday, we call it fuck you Fridays. So we do a barbecue dish every (laughs) Friday. And so like our one this weekend uh, we get we got a local uh, short ribs from uh, Rains Farm, which is a, a all Wagyu beef farm in North Louisiana. And we rub them down. We, our, one of our sous chefs worked for uh, a famous Indian chef. And I feel terrible. His name just jumped out of my head. But he was the chef who passed away from COVID. She worked for him. And so she had this amazing rub that we put on him. And so we put the rub on there. We let him sit overnight. And then like after I got the phone with you, I'm going to go smoke them for six hours. And then we're going to put them in the oven tonight, wrap them up in plastic and foil and slow cook them. And tomorrow we're going to run them as our fuck you special. So how do you come up with those ideas for these uh, special uh, Fridays, you know, dishes that you're doing? We look at it, what proteins are. So like, so at MoFo, I have to be honest, a lot of our, for our everyday dishes, we use a lot of commodities products. I mean, MoFo's guest check average is $22 a head. So we have to run, MoFo has to run like a 22% food cost. It cannot run a high food cost or else we'll go out of business. It's still a business. But for all of our specialty dishes, you know, like all of our seafood is always the Louisiana seafood. We never compromise on that. And then if we're going to run a special, we always try to find local chicken. Like last week, and we did 
uh, barbecue chicken thighs over this peach and tomato salad with this uh, with this roasted jalapeno and and toasted dried shrimp cornbread. But we got all the chickens from a local farm, so the chicken thighs are much smaller. Uh, you know, they're not as big and plump as the commodity chicken legs. So you know, it, it makes and it's different for the guests. The guests are like, wow, this chicken is way different. It's like, yeah, that's actually a that's a wild. That's actually a true farm raised chicken. They're not as big. They're not as plump because they run around all day. So they don't have, they can't get as plump and fat. And so that's kind of, so it's fun to kind of do these specials and the specials are where we really show the local produce and the local farm raised animals. So like this week we, we go and we look and see what they have. Well, they have a, a, a really good price on these Wagyu short ribs. So what are we going to do with short ribs? And then, you know, me and Paul and our sous chef, Charlotte, we get together and we come up with it with a dish for the next week. So we usually come up with a dish for next week on Saturday. And then we spend that whole week getting that dish ready, and then we run it the following Friday. What is the your favorite dish that you have uh, created? <laughs> That's unfair. There's so many dishes that we've made that I really, really love. <sighs> I mean, the one that I go back, I guess I always, when people ask me that, I always go with the one that has had the most resonance. So, you know, we do the the fermented black bean gumbo, which is whenever I would go eat at Traditional Vietnamese restaurants, you get the fermented black bean braised uh, lobster or the fermented black bean braised shrimp or the fermented black bean braised crabs. And that flavor, those fermented black beans always remind me of gumbo. So when we first opened MoFo, I made a really good blue crab gumbo, but I added the fermented black beans because I had them in the pantry and we ran it as a special and people just really, really loved the flavor. And then over the years, I just kept adding more and more of that Vietnamese pantry. So I had, I had started adding lime leaves and cassia bark and uh black cardamom pods and so now it's this dish that's it's always on the on the lunch menu at mo at maypop and it's run as a weekly special at mofo and it's just every time we have it on it sells out and it's just one of those dishes that is that that iconic blending of the two cuisines and i guess that's the one that i can go back to the most that it was, it was just a creation brought together by you know all the things that have that the training and the influences and I don't know. I think, I guess that's the one. And then now we serve it with potato salad in it, which is one of those ones that is very, uh, a lot of people in New Orleans don't like potato salad in their gumbo, but I learned that from when I spent time in Thibodeau, Louisiana, going to culinary school down in, in Cajun country, uh, in the river parishes, they, they put potato salad in their gumbo and it's just, and I think it makes it creamy and it adds this whole other layer of texture and creaminess to the gumbo. Uh, Do you think so this is it. like a, a German heritage there somewhere? hundred percent, because there was a huge German influx along the um, along those areas, like I mean, the Bayou des Allemands, the, the the German Bayou. That's where we get all of our andouille. Our andouille is actually, you know, it was German settlers smoking meats in their way, but then giving it a French name so that everyone would buy it. You know, that's because because our andouille is not French; it's one hundred percent German smokehouse sausage. You're talking a lot about flavors and it seems very, uh, you know, enthusiastic and excited about like the different flavors of, um, you know, mixing from, you know, Louisiana and as well from Southeast Asia. I'm curious if there is uh, the technique is important as much as the creativity aspect coming through the, the flavors. Because, you know, when we talk to with chefs, you know, it's always the balance between the techniques and, and, you know, the technique and the creativity. So I wanted to have a little bit your, your thoughts about that. Well, you know, when I try to explain it to like younger cooks coming up, you know, so there's a big thing where a lot of cooks skip 
especially now in the days where you can get all the information off the internet and like the books are so easy to access where they just want to skip to just throwing things together. But like for me, I spent years as just as a line cook, you know, I spent years just working each station and really learning how to roast something, really learning how to, to re-emulsify sauces, how to pop properly poile, how to properly sear, how to properly roast, how to properly grill, how to properly make a, a, you know, a risotto, you know, risotto has steps to it, you know, that, that a lot of people don't realize that, you, you know, the toasting of the rice, you know, toasting it as long as you possibly can, then adding the, the, the water, the, the liquid and making sure the liquid's boiling and making sure you're stirring a certain amount of time. And then, the mantecado where you pull it up a heat and work in the, all the fats, the butters and the cheese. And like, there's so many, if you haven't worked for someone who knows how to do it and have been shown the right way, like just like my chef in Italy teaching me how to properly emulsify pasta and how it shouldn't have way tons of sauce. If it's made properly, the sauce clings to the pasta and is, you know, we'd have to sit there and toss, toss, toss. He would sit there and yell, salta, salta, salta. And we'd toss <laughs> it, toss it, toss it while he emulsified olive oil into it to make the sauce extra rich and to cling to the, to the, to the, to the fresh pasta. And it's like these rules that you can't learn that in a book. So a lot of my time is spent like teaching these, you know, like one of my sous chefs came over the dish and the dish was beautiful, but then he just let the cooks run with it. And I'm like, Hey man, you need to go back there and show them exactly what you did because that is not like the dish that you made. Like this kid doesn't, you know, this young cook doesn't know how to properly mount the butter into the, cause we, we do sticky rice dishes, but we treat them like risottos. So we kind of meet it halfway. We do, we soak the rice, the, the traditional short grain sticky rice. We soak it, then we steam it, but then we pick it up like we're finishing a risotto. And it actually gives you this really awesome texture. It's, it, the rice stays almost like pops in your mouth. And then, but it, but it still has that starch and that ability to kind of cream out. It's not a risotto. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not a replacement for risotto. A true risotto is something very special when it's done properly. Whereas the thing we do is, is, and I try to always stress that to my, my, my cooks. I'm like, what we're doing is, is nothing, but it's everything. I'm showing you a way to make a sticky rice like a risotto, but it's not a risotto. Don't confuse that. Do you feel that the, the young generation of cooks are really um, interested in learning, you know, the techniques or they really want to, you know, to really jump into, you know, like the creativity aspect and they don't really spend the time in, in, uh, in the learning process? It's, I think it's like, there's always gray areas and you want to say, oh yeah, these kids, they just don't want to pay attention. I think there are some that really do want to sit there and learn all the techniques and really put in the time. I think there's a lot of pressure put on young cooks to be the youngest. You know, I felt the same thing. You have to be the youngest, best new chef. You have to be the first to do everything. You have to be the youngest to open your restaurant. And that's stupid. (laughs) Like this is your career. You know, if you're not fully ready to do what you're going to do, then you're just going to waste money and you're going to waste time and you're going to waste energy. And I think we as a culture, an American culture, put too much pressure on being the first to do everything. And it's like, sometimes that's not the best approach. I think there was a big push in the early aughts to do the culinary schools and to to rush out and be the best, youngest, best new chef. And I think that was a fad. And I think it was a bubble. And I think that that has burst. I think a lot of parents, that's why all the culinary schools folded long before the pandemic hit. All the, the Cordon Blues folded because all the parents realized that, all right, my, my kid is not going to go to culinary school for two years for a ton of money and then get out and be an executive chef in a, in, in a year. Like, that's not how it works. It's, it takes years of, of learning your craft, of spending, you know, hard times in hot kitchens and learning how to be good at it. And even then, it's still kind of a broken system. You know, restaurants are big pass-through companies. Most of our money goes to our staff. 
and our purveyors. It doesn't retain with the ownership doesn't retain it. And not if you're trying to do a really forward thinking, pushing restaurant that has a, you know, that is constantly getting in great produce and great products that that's expensive. And so it, it eats into your revenue. It eats into your, to your, not your revenue, but it eats into your, into your profits. And so that's been the, the hardest part with MoFo and Maypop is finding that happy medium to where we, the owners are still making money because most of our money goes to the staff. It goes to the labor and it goes to the, to the purveyors for their, for, and to our farmer friends. I think that's where it goes. And do you think that the perception, you know, of uh, like the people perception of, or the young cook perception of what the trade of, um, you know, having a restaurant, it's going to change, you know, because of the situation, the current situation of, uh, you know, with the pandemic? I think there's going to be maybe like a, <laughs> I don't want to use that word, but I don't know which one that I should actually use, but like something maybe positive out of it. Right. Well, I think, and I had this conversation with someone else recently where it's like, I think that bubble was going to burst anyway. Like it was going to go back to being, because it was just, it just got inflated with these cooks who wanted to be on Top Chef and on TV. And, and so they were just flooding kitchens and flooding culinary schools. And, you know, when I was running Restaurant August, I had a line of cooks out the back door wanting to spend their year or even their three months learning at Restaurant August and then go off to open their own restaurant. It's like, man, that's not how that works. And I think now more of them are seeing how hard it actually is to run and operate restaurants. And in the whole, the whole industry is changing. It's, it's definitely, I mean, if it's a restaurant where the, where the, where the cook is really, where it's really a chef driven restaurant who cares about his employees, it's really changing. And it's been a hard change. You know, you come up seeing your bosses do it one way and being like, oh man, I'll never do it that way. But it's kind of like the, you know, the hypocritical parent thing. You see your parents doing something you're like, oh, I'll never do it that way. And then you find yourself doing it to your own kids. And so it, it, it requires some unlearning. It requires unlearning the things that you were doing because you saw your boss do it. And even though you said you would never do it, suddenly like you find yourself yelling at a cook one day and you're like, dude, I said I would never do that. I have to unlearn that. And I think it's going to be, there's already so much progress being made, but the hard part is really figuring out, like, I'm almost kind of excited right now. I'm, I'm able to run MoFo with a lot less employees. I have to run it with less employees because of uh, of uh, 50% occupancy problems. So I'm running it with less employees. And to be quite honest, because I'm running it with less employees and we're marginally busy, I can actually pay them all more. You know, we got so caught in just making sure that the customer has everything that they need, that we overstaff the restaurants with way too many cooks and way too many servers, back waiters, bus boys, you know, barbacks, that it's so much labor that you can't pay everyone what they're worth. I was talking with a, a, a chef like recently, and she was mentioning to me that, you know, everything before was almost the rule of like bigger is better. You know, like a bigger restaurants, you know, a bigger dining room, a lot of seats and, uh, you know, like a, a great menus with a lot of offers, you know, offering on the menus and so on. And and in fact, with the pandemic now, uh, she said, we have to rethink everything. And yeah, it is possible to run something which is maybe a smaller operation, uh, you know, with, um, you know, of course, a, a smaller uh, staff. A smaller right. team, and uh, and maybe you're not going to serve 250, uh, you know, dishes a night, and it's going to be maybe uh, you know like 50 and so on. But but you can still live right. on it and 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 pay your people more. So uh, it's interesting to hear you said you know similar thing. Yeah, I mean, because I, I talked to my business partners, and I'm like, hey man, like we know we know how to do 250,000 in sales in a month and lose 30 grand, but can we learn now how to do 
eighty thousand in sales, but keep but keep twenty grand in profit for next month. We already know how to do it big and lose money. Can we do it small and make money? I would like to pick up your brain, like I do with a lot of um, you know chef as a guest on the, on the podcast. Is thinking about the home cook. Can you maybe share with us an, uh, an idea of how to prepare a nice uh, chicken dish, but it will be the Michael Gulota style, <laughs> if you will? Okay. Well, so I always try to teach people like the secrets of Southeast Asian curries because they're very different from Indian curries. And what I always love about the approach and what a lot of people don't understand and what's something that I didn't understand is you don't ever cook the meat in the curry. The meat is cooked separately and then you you bathe it in the curry right before serving it. That way, the two things retain their individual flavors because if you add a meat to the curry too far ahead of time, then it all just tastes like the meat. Like if you bra- if you do a lamb curry, but you cook the lamb in the curry, then the whole thing just tastes like lamb. But if you make the lamb and then put the curry over the top, then the lamb tastes like lamb and the curry tastes like curry and it makes the dish much more dynamic. So what I would do if I had chicken and if I wanted to do a really nice chicken curry dish, I would brine that chicken. Then uh, a simple salt, sugar. I usually do salt, sugar, chili flake and water and then heat it up. And as soon as the sugar and the salt dissolve in the water, then I usually add some ice to cool it down and I would soak the chicken in that. I usually like to do just uh, leg quarters. So just leg quarters of chicken. I would brine it. Then I would make just a really simple. uh, Let's do a tomato and smoked paprika curry. That's one of my favorites that we do a lot. And it's. In a pan, you would just do some minced ginger, some minced shallots, some minced garlic. You could do some lemongrass rings. You can usually find that at the grocery store these days. If you can find some frozen lime leaves, throw those in there as well. Sweat them down. Put in a little bit of smoked paprika. I would do either some dried shrimp if you can find it or some shrimp paste. If not, you can actually omit all of that. Put in a little bit of coconut milk. Bring it to a simmer and then cut the heat because you don't want to boil coconut milk. You just want to bring it up and then cut the heat. And then you can season it up with either salt or fish sauce. I would say fish sauce, a little bit of lime juice. And if you want, you can balance it with a little bit of sugar. Let let that just kind of steep. Then I would do the chicken brine the night before. Uh, But if not, you just brine it for like an hour. Pull the chicken out, dry it off with a towel. You can sprinkle it with a little bit of uh, salt and pepper. And then you can roast that in the oven, 350 for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, roast it all the way through. And then I would serve each chicken leg quarter. If you want, you can kind of cut it at the knee and separate it into a thigh and a, and a, and a drum into a bowl with a little bit of uh, coconut rice. Basically, if you want to make coconut rice, just buy some regular jasmine or just short uh, long grain rice. If you're doing a cup of rice, do the, a cup of rice, a cup of water, and a quarter cup of coconut milk with a little salt and you cook it that way. And it has a really nice uh, aromatic coconut flavor and smell to it. So do some coconut rice in the bowl, put the chicken legs in the bowl and then spoon the, the curry over the top. Sorry. You can add some fresh tomato to the curry. You can also add maybe a little fresh pineapple to the curry to keep it simple and, and then finish it with a lot of fresh basil and cilantro. And then you have a really bright dish. That's actually very, very healthy. Wow. Uh, I know what I'm going to do this weekend. <laughs> I'm going to make that recipe for oh, sure. <laughs> I forgot the smoked paprika. If you can get your hands on some really good smoked paprika, uh, okay. the smoked paprika is a is a obviously um, traditional European thing. But if you add it to that that coconut milk, it really perfumes it and adds a, an amazing smokiness to the dish. Okay. So, and you and I would add that right when I add the coconut milk. 
Okay. And uh, you said that you will brine the chicken the night before. Is it like a regular brine or do you have something specific in the, in the brine? Uh, when I do brine, I mean, we usually keep our brines pretty, it's always just uh, sugar, salt, and chili flake typically. And then we'll, we'll bring it up. We'll do half the amount of water, bring it to a boil, and then ha- add the other half of the water as ice to cool it back down again. And that's our, our basic brine. You know, if we're doing something different, like when I brined the chicken legs for that special the other day, I actually ground raw beet into the brine. So it actually colors the chicken a pink color. And when you roast it, it kind of gives it that sort of tandoori chicken color to it. It also gives a little sweetness to the brine. But also you can add spices to your brines. Like I like to put smoked uh, or black cardamom into my brines because it adds some smokiness to the meat whenever you roast it. But uh, but yeah, salt, sugar, chili flake is, the, is our basic brine. And then we'll add other things to that to build on to it. So thank you so much for sharing, um, you know, this delicious dish with us. Let me um, go to the, uh, the rapid fire questions. So um, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Ice cream. Okay. What kind now? I, you have to tell me more. <laughs> what kind of- <laughs> it's a toss up between uh, chocolate and peanut butter. Okay. Like I love a good chocolate peanut butter ice cream. And then my guiltiest one from when I was a kid is mint chocolate chip. So you, you travel, you know, in Southeast Asia. So I'm sure you have tasted some interesting, strange things. So what's the strangest thing that you have ever eaten? So there's a dish in Laos where they smoke it. Or here's the trick. It looks like smoked honeycomb. And you're like, oh my God, smoked honeycomb. That sounds amazing. But it's not smoked honeycomb. What it actually is. It is the smoked part of the bee's hive where the larvae are kept and where they are hatched. So when you bite into it, it's this sponge. So they soak it, they brine it, and then they smoke it over coals. And so it is this, and so it's, it's literally you're eating the, like the styrofoamy part of the, of the, of the bee's nest and, and all the little pods are full of bee larvae. That, wow. That, that was the, that was not enjoyable. It was unenjoyable. We tried to enjoy it, and we didn't. And we didn't enjoy it. <laughs> oh my gosh! What are like the three dishes that you could not live without eating or cooking? Mmm, curry. Like curries have always been. I've always loved curries, even before the ideas of mofo or maypop ever came into my mind. Curries have always been because they just hit. They just the, the hot, sour, salty, sweet where it hits you everywhere. Gumbo. Because gumbo is almost the same. A properly made gumbo has all those balances. There's a richness, there's a brightness, there's an acidity, there's a spice. What kind of gumbo do you like? I have two favorites. So I either like a really traditional uh, okra and blue crab, or I like a really traditional andouille and duck or andouille and chicken. Yeah, and third one. Third one, you know, I I gotta go. It's a hard one, but I I kind of gotta go with a really really old school traditional seafood pasta like the ones we used to serve at the restaurant Junketto, where it was just it was just really simple it was always kind of two parts you had tomato gravy that was cooked right, way down all day but then you toss that with fresh chopped tomatoes white wine chili flake parsley and then it was just toss 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 um, uh, in like with fresh seafood just like the whole shrimp thrown in the heads crushed in the sauce and simmered and then just toss 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 with that pasta it's like really simple pasta dishes like that that are done really, really well. I just, I can't. They're just amazing. What type of pasta? What kind? Good old fashioned, uh, either linguine or spaghetti, just done well. Do you have like three cookbooks that you can mention that inspired you the most during your career? Mm, 
hot, sour, salty, sweet, which is, uh, God, I can't think of, I can't think of the, the, the writers right now, but hot, sour, salty, sweet, which is basically a travel down the Mekong country cooking of France by, I think her name is Anne Wilhelm and made in Italy by Giorgio Locatelli. Biggest pet peeves in the kitchen for you. Mm. <laughs> biggest pet peeve. One of my biggest pet peeves is when cooks will just like, they'll have their plots wrapped up in the, in the nine pans or the six pans. And then instead of just taking all the wrap off, they'll just break into it with their hand because then plastic gets into the food and it's plus it just looks messy. Oh. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, OCD in the kitchen. So like unnecessary messes are, are very uh, annoying to me. Okay. I'm going to go with that. So talking about annoying, what annoys you the most in the industry? And that will be my last one. <laughs> God, I don't know. That's a hard one. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think everyone's trying to just, they just want to succeed. Sometimes it's like, at what cost? I think that's a hard one to say because the industry is in such a bad state right now. Right. Yeah. That I almost feel bad giving any attack on it. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't actually know, like, I don't know the right way forward right now. Like, I hope we've already kind of exposed all the real big problems in the industry. And I think there's even more to figure out. And I think our industry is in a, a state of of re of uh, rebirth. I don't know where we're going to come out on the other side, and I, I don't like. It's so hard to say like what bugs me right now when I think there's so many fundamental changes going on in the industry at the moment. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Chef. I really appreciate that you gave some time and to to be a guest on uh, on the podcast. Finally, uh, I got you in. <laughs> thank you. Of course. There it is, me and Chef Michael Gulota talking about his restaurants in New Orleans and how he found inspiration by combining flavors from the South and Southern Asian countries. I have a freebie for you guys. You can download the Asian curry recipe from Chef Michael Gulota together with other tips on how you can give an Asian twist to your home cooking. Get it at itinerary.flavorsunknown.com forward slash Michael Gulota. Again, it is itinerary.flavorsunknown.com forward slash Michael Gulota. Hope you guys liked today's episode. And if you did, go on and share it with a friend and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Go to the webpage flavorsunknown.com to access all the episode show notes. Thank you for listening. And in two weeks, I will have Charlotte Voicy, former bartenders and now head of ambassadors from William Grand Ensign in the US. She will share with us what brand ambassadors do and how to become one. And obviously, we will talk about cocktail making. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.